Book Four, Part Two of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrib. Book four, AD twenty three to twenty eight, part two. Sons of Germanicus resented by Tiberius. In the consulship of Cornelius Cethegus and Vesalius Varro, the pontiffs, whose example was followed by the other priests in offering prayers for the emperor's health, commended also Nero and Drusus to the same deities, not so much out of love for the young princes as out of sycophancy, the absence and excess of which in a corrupt age are alike dangerous. Tiberius, indeed, who was never friendly to the house of Germanicus, was then vexed beyond endurance at their youth being honoured equally with his declining years. He summoned the pontiffs, and asked them whether it was to the entreaties or the threats of Agrippina that they had made this concession. And though they gave a flat denial, he rebuked them, but gently, for many of them were her own relatives or were leading men in the state. However, he addressed a warning to the Senate against encouraging pride in their young and excitable minds by premature honours, for Sejanus spoke vehemently, and charged them with rending the state almost by civil war. There were those, he said, who called themselves the party of Agrippina, and unless they were checked, there would be more. The only remedy for the increasing discord was the overthrow of one or two of the most enterprising leaders. Accordingly, he attacked Caius Silius, and Titius Sabinus. The friendship of Germanicus was fatal to both. As for Silius, his having commanded a great army for seven years, and won in Germany the distinctions of a triumph for his success in the war with Sacrivia, would make his downfall all the more tremendous, and so spread greater terror among others. Many thought that he had provoked further displeasure by his own presumption and his extravagant boasts that his troops had been steadfastly loyal while other armies were falling into mutiny, and that Tiberius's throne could not have lasted had his legions too been bent on revolution. All this the emperor regarded as undermining his own power, which seemed to be unequal to the burden of such an obligation. For benefits received are a delight to us as long as we think we can requite them. When that possibility is far exceeded, they are repaid with hatred instead of gratitude. Silius had a wife, Sosia Galla, whose love of Agrippina made her hateful to the emperor. The two, it was decided, were to be attacked, but Sabinus was to be put off for a time. Varro, the consul, was let loose on them, who, under colour of a hereditary feud, humoured the malignity of Sejanus to his own disgrace. 
The accused begged a brief respite until the prosecutor's consulship expired, but the emperor opposed the request. It was usual, he argued, for magistrates to bring a private citizen to trial, and a consul's authority ought not to be impaired, seeing that it rested with his vigilance to guard the commonwealth from loss. It was characteristic of Tiberius to veil new devices in wickedness under ancient names. And so, with a solemn appeal, he summoned the Senate, as if there were any laws by which Silius was being tried, as if Varro were a real consul, or Rome a commonwealth. The accused either said nothing, or, if he attempted to defend himself, hinted, not obscurely, at the person whose resentment was crushing him. A long-concealed complicity in Sacrivia's rebellion, a rapacity which sullied his victory, and his wife Sosia's conduct were alleged against him. Unquestionably they could not extricate themselves from the charge of extortion. The whole affair, however, was conducted as a trial for treason, and Silius forestalled impending doom by a self-inflicted death. Yet there was a merciless confiscation of his property, though not to refund their money to the provincials, none of whom pressed any demand. But Augustus's bounty was wrested from him, and the claims of the imperial exchequer were computed in detail. This was the first instance on Tiberius's part of sharp dealing with the wealth of others. Sosia was banished on the motion of Asinius Gallus, who had proposed that half her estate should be confiscated, half left to the children. Marcus Lepidus, on the contrary, was for giving a fourth to the prosecutors, as the law required, and the remainder to the children. This Lepidus, I am satisfied, was for that age a wise and high-principled man. Many a cruel suggestion made by the flattery of others he changed for the better, and yet he did not want tact, seeing that he always enjoyed an uniform prestige and also the favour of Tiberius. This compels me to doubt whether the liking of princes for some men and their antipathy to others depend, like other contingencies, on a fate and destiny to which we are born, or to some degree on our own plans, so that it is possible to pursue a course between a defiant independence and a debasing civility free from ambition and its perils. Messalinus Cotter, of equally illustrious ancestry as Lepidus, but wholly different in disposition, proposed that the Senate should pass a decree providing that even innocent governors who knew nothing of the delinquencies of others should be punished for their wives' offences in the provinces as much as for their own. Proceedings were then taken against Calpurnius Piso, a high-spirited nobleman. He it was, as I have related, who had exclaimed more than once in the Senate that he would quit Rome because of the combinations of the informers, and had dared in defiance of Augusta's power to sue Urgulania and summon her from the emperor's palace. Tiberius submitted to this at the time not ungraciously, 
but the remembrance of it was vividly impressed on a mind which brooded over its resentments, even though the first impulse of his displeasure had subsided. Quintus Granius accused Piso of secret treasonable conversation, and added that he kept poison in his house and wore a dagger whenever he came into the Senate. This was passed over as too atrocious to be true. He was to be tried on the other charges, a multitude of which were heaped on him, but his timely death cut short the trial. Next was taken the case of Cassius Severus, an exile, a man of mean origin and a life of crime, but a powerful pleader he had brought on himself, by his persistent quarrelsomeness, a decision of the Senate under oath which banished him to Crete. There, by the same practices, he drew on himself fresh odium and revived the old. Stripped of his property and outlawed, he wore out his old age on the rock of Seriphus. About the same time, Plautius Silvanus, the praetor, for unknown reasons, threw his wife Apronia out of a window. When summoned before the emperor by Lucius Apronius, his father-in-law, he replied incoherently, representing that he was in a sound sleep, and consequently knew nothing, and that his wife had chosen to destroy herself. Without a moment's delay, Tiberius went to the house and inspected the chamber, where were seen the marks of her struggling and of her forcible ejection. He reported this to the Senate, and as soon as judges had been appointed, Ergulania, the grandmother of Silvanus, sent her grandson a dagger. This was thought equivalent to a hint from the emperor, because of the known intimacy between Augusta and Ergulania. The accused tried the steel in vain, and then allowed his veins to be opened. Shortly afterwards, Numantina, his former wife, was charged with having caused her husband's insanity by magical incantations and potions, but she was acquitted. This year at last released Rome from her long contest with the Numidian Tacforinus. Former generals, when they thought that their successes were enough to ensure them triumphal distinctions, left the enemy to himself. There were now in Rome three laurelled statues, and yet Tacforinus was still ravaging Africa, strengthened by reinforcements from the Moors, who, under the boyish and careless rule of Ptolemaeus, Juba's son, had chosen war in preference to the despotism of freedmen and slaves. He had the king of the Garamantes to receive his plunder, and to be the partner of his raids, not indeed with a regular army, but with detachments of light troops whose strength, as they came from a distance, rumour exaggerated. From the province itself every needy and restless adventurer hurried to join him, for the emperor, as if not an enemy remained in Africa after the achievements of Blesus, had ordered the Ninth Legion home, and Publius Dolabella, proconsul that year, had not dared to retain it, because he feared the sovereign's orders more than the risks of war. Tacforinus accordingly spread rumours, that elsewhere also nations were rending the empire of Rome, and that therefore her soldiers were gradually retiring from Africa, 
and that the rest might be cut off by a strong effort on the part of all who loved freedom more than slavery. He thus augmented his force, and having formed a camp, he besieged the town of Tubuscum. Dolabella, meanwhile, collecting all the troops on the spot, raised the siege at his first approach, by the terror of the Roman name, and because the Numidians cannot stand against the charge of infantry. He then fortified suitable positions, and at the same time beheaded some chiefs of the Musulamii, who were on the verge of rebellion. Next, as several expeditions against Tacferinus had proved the uselessness of following up the enemy's desultory movements with the attack of heavy troops from a single point, he summoned to his aid King Ptolemaeus and his people, and equipped four columns under the command of his lieutenants and tribunes. Marauding parties were also led by picked moors, Dolabella in person directing every operation. Soon afterwards news came that the Numidians had fixed their tents and encamped near a half-demolished fortress by name Orzia, to which they had themselves formally set fire, and on the position of which they relied, as it was enclosed by vast forests. Immediately the light infantry and cavalry, without knowing whither they were being led, were hurried along at quick march. Day dawned, and with the sound of trumpets and fierce shouts, they were on the half-asleep barbarians, whose horses were tethered or roaming over distant pastures. On the Roman side the infantry was in close array, the cavalry in its squadrons, everything prepared for an engagement, while the enemy, utterly surprised, without arms, order, or plan, were seized, slaughtered, or captured like cattle. The infuriated soldiers, remembering their hardships, and how often the longed-for conflict had been eluded, sated themselves to a man with vengeance and bloodshed. The word went through the companies that all were to aim at securing Tacferinus, whom, after so many battles, they knew well, as there would be no rest from war except by the destruction of the enemy's leader. Tacferinus, his guards slain round him, his son a prisoner, and the Romans bursting on him from every side, rushed on the darts, and by a death which was not unavenged, escaped captivity. This ended the war. Dolabella asked for triumphal distinctions, but was refused by Tiberius, out of compliment to Sejanus, the glory of whose uncle Blesus he did not wish to be forgotten. But this did not make Blesus more famous, while the refusal of the honour heightened Dolabella's renown. He had, in fact, with a smaller army, brought back with him illustrious prisoners, and the fame of having slain the enemy's leader, and terminated the war. In his train were envoys from the Garamantes, a rare spectacle in Rome. The nation, in its terror at the destruction of Tacferinus, and innocent of any guilty intention, had sent them to crave pardon of the Roman people. And now that this war had proved the zealous loyalty of Ptolemaeus, a custom of antiquity was revived, and one of the senators was sent to present him with an ivory sceptre and an embroidered robe, gifts anciently bestowed by the senate, 
and to confer on him the titles of king, ally, and friend. The same summer the germs of a slave war in Italy were crushed by a fortunate accident. The originator of the movement was Titus Catisius, once a soldier of the Praetorian Guard. First by secret meetings at Brundisium and the neighbouring towns, then by placards publicly exhibited, he incited the rural and savage slave population of the remote forests to assert their freedom. By divine providence three vessels came to land for the use of those who traversed that sea. In the same part of the country too was Curtius Lupus, the quaestor, who, according to ancient precedent, had had the charge of the woodland pastures assigned to him. Putting in motion a force of marines, he broke up the seditious combination in its very first beginnings. The emperor at once sent Staius a tribune with a strong detachment by whom the ringleader himself, with his most daring followers, were brought prisoners to Rome, where men already trembled at the vast scale of the slave establishments, in which there was an immense growth, while the freeborn populace daily decreased. That same consulship witnessed a horrible instance of misery and brutality. A father as defendant, a son as prosecutor, Vibius Serenus was the name of both, were brought before the Senate. The father, dragged from exile in filth and squalor, now stood in irons, while the son pleaded for his guilt. With studious elegance of dress and cheerful looks, the youth, at once accuser and witness, alleged a plot against the emperor, and that men had been sent to Gaul to excite rebellion, further adding that Sicilius Cornutus, an ex-praetor, had furnished money. Cornutus, weary of anxiety, and feeling that peril was equivalent to ruin, hastened to destroy himself. But the accused, with fearless spirit, looked his son in the face, shook his chains, and appealed to the vengeance of the gods with a prayer that they would restore him to his exile, where he might live far away from such practices, and that, as for his son, punishment might sooner or later overtake him. He protested, too, that Cornutus was innocent, and that his terror was groundless, as would easily be perceived if other names were given up, for he never would have plotted the emperor's murder and a revolution with only one confederate. Upon this the prosecutor named Gnaeus Lentulus and Seius Tubero, to the great confusion of the emperor at finding a hostile rebellion and disturbance of the public peace charged on two leading men in the state, his own intimate friends, the first of whom was in extreme old age, and the second in very feeble health. They were, however, at once acquitted. As for the father, his slaves were examined by torture, and the result was unfavourable to the accuser. The man, maddened by remorse and terror-stricken by the popular voice which menaced him with the dungeon, the rock, or a parricide's doom, fled from Rome. He was dragged back from Ravenna, and forced to go through the prosecution, 
during which Tiberius did not disguise the old grudge he bore the exile Serenus. For after Libo's conviction, Serenus had sent the emperor a letter, upbraiding him for not having rewarded his special zeal in that trial, with further hints more insolent than could be safely trusted to the easily offended ears of a despot. All this Tiberius revived eight years later, charging on him various misconduct during that interval, even though the examination by torture, owing to the obstinacy of the slaves, had contradicted his guilt. The Senate then gave their votes that Serenus should be punished according to ancient precedent, when the Emperor, to soften the odium of the affair, interposed with his veto. Next, Gallus Asinius proposed that he should be confined in Gaiaros or Donusa, but this he rejected on the ground that both these islands were deficient in water, and that he whose life was spared ought to be allowed the necessaries of life. And so Serenus was conveyed back to Amorgus. In consequence of the suicide of Cornutus, it was proposed to deprive informers of their rewards whenever a person accused of treason put an end to his life by his own act before the completion of the trial. The motion was on the point of being carried when the emperor, with a harshness contrary to his manner, spoke openly for the informers, complaining that the laws would be ineffective and the state brought to the verge of ruin. Better, he said, to subvert the constitution than to remove its guardians. Thus the informers, a class invented to destroy the commonwealth and never enough controlled even by legal penalties, were stimulated by rewards. Some little joy broke this long succession of horrors. Caius Cominius, a Roman knight, was spared by the emperor, against whom he was convicted of having written libelous verses, at the intercession of his brother, who was a senator. Hence it seemed the more amazing that one who knew better things, and the glory which waits on mercy, should prefer harsher courses. He did not indeed err from dullness, and it is easy to see when the acts of a sovereign meet with genuine, and when with fictitious popularity. And even he himself, though usually artificial in manner, and though his words escaped him with a seeming struggle, spoke out freely and fluently whenever he came to a man's rescue. In another case, that of Publius Suilius, formerly quaestor to Germanicus, who was to be expelled from Italy on a conviction of having received money for a judicial decision, he held that the man ought to be banished to an island, and so intensely strong was his feeling that he bound the Senate by an oath that this was a state necessity. The act was thought cruel at the moment, but subsequently it redounded to his honour when Suilius returned from exile. The next age saw him in tremendous power, and a venal creature of the Emperor Claudius, whose friendship he long used with success never for good. The same punishment was adjudged to Catus Firmius, a senator, for having, it was alleged, assailed his sister with a false charge of treason. Catus, as I have related, had drawn Libo into a snare, and then destroyed him by an information. 
Tiberius, remembering this service, while he alleged other reasons, deprecated a sentence of exile, but did not oppose his expulsion from the Senate. Much of what I have related, and shall have to relate, may perhaps, I am aware, seem petty trifles to record. But no one must compare my annals with the writings of those who have described Rome in old days. They told of great wars, of the storming of cities, of the defeat and capture of kings, or, whenever they turned by preference to home affairs, they related, with a free scope for digression, the strifes of consuls with tribunes, land and corn laws, and the struggles between the commons and the aristocracy. My labours are circumscribed and inglorious, peace wholly unbroken, or but slightly disturbed, dismal misery in the capital, an emperor careless about the enlargement of the empire, such is my theme. Still it will not be useless to study those at first sight trifling events out of which the movements of vast changes often take their rise. All nations and cities are ruled by the people, the nobility, or by one man. A constitution formed by selection out of these elements it is easy to commend, but not to produce, or, if it is produced, it cannot be lasting. Formerly, when the people had power, or when the patricians were in the ascendant, the popular temper and the methods of controlling it had to be studied, and those who knew most accurately the spirit of the senate and aristocracy had the credit of understanding the age and of being wise men. So now, after a revolution, when Rome is nothing but the realm of a single despot, there must be good in carefully noting and recording this period, for it is but few who have the foresight to distinguish right from wrong, or what is sound from what is hurtful, while most men learn wisdom from the fortunes of others. Still, though this is instructive, it gives very little pleasure. Descriptions of countries, the various incidents of battles, glorious deaths of great generals, enchain and refresh a reader's mind. I have to present in succession the merciless biddings of a tyrant, incessant prosecutions, faithless friendships, the ruin of innocence, the same causes issuing in the same results, and I am everywhere confronted by a wearisome monotony in my subject matter. Then again, an ancient historian has but few disparagers, and no one cares whether you praise more heartily the armies of Carthage or Rome. But of many who endured punishment or disgrace under Tiberius, the descendants yet survive. Or even though the families themselves may be now extinct, you will find those who, from a resemblance of character, imagine that the evil deeds of others are a reproach to themselves. Again, even honour and virtue make enemies, condemning as they do their opposites by too close a contrast. But I return to my work. In the year of the consulship of Cornelius Cossus and Asinius Agrippa, Cremutius Cordus was arraigned on a new charge, now for the first time heard. 
he had published a history in which he had praised Marcus Brutus, and called Gaius Cassius the last of the Romans. His accusers were Satrius Secundus and Panarius Natter, creatures of Sejanus. This was enough to ruin the accused, and then, too, the emperor listened with an angry frown to his defence, which Cremutius, resolved to give up his life, began thus. It is my words, senators, which are condemned, so innocent am I of any guilty act. Yet these do not touch the emperor or the emperor's mother, who are alone comprehended under the law of treason. I am said to have praised Brutus and Cassius, whose careers many have described, and no one mentioned without eulogy. Titus Livius, preeminently famous for eloquence and truthfulness, extolled Cnaeus Pompeius in such a panegyric that Augustus called him Pompeianus, and yet this was no obstacle to their friendship. Scipio, Afranius, this very Cassius, this same Brutus, he nowhere describes as brigands and traitors, terms now applied to them, but repeatedly as illustrious men. Asinius Pollio's writings, too, hand down a glorious memory of them, and Messala Corvinus used to speak with pride of Cassius as his general. Yet both these men prospered to the end with wealth and preferment. Again, that book of Marcus Cicero, in which he lauded Cato to the skies, how else was it answered by Caesar the dictator, than by a written oration in reply, as if he was pleading in court. The letters of Antonius, the harangues of Brutus, contain reproaches against Augustus, false indeed, but urged with powerful sarcasm. The poems which we read of Bibaculus and Catullus are crammed with invectives on the Caesars. Yet the divine Julius, the divine Augustus themselves, bore all this, and let it pass, whether in forbearance or in wisdom I cannot easily say. Assuredly what is despised is soon forgotten. When you resent a thing, you seem to recognize it. Of the Greeks I say nothing. With them not only liberty, but even license went unpunished, or if a person aimed at chastising, he retaliated on satire by satire. It has, however, always been perfectly open to us, without any one to censure, to speak freely of those whom death has withdrawn alike from the partialities of hatred or esteem. Are Cassius and Brutus now in arms on the fields of Philippi, and am I with them rousing the people by harangues to stir up civil war? Did they not fall more than seventy years ago, and as they are known to us by statues which even the conqueror did not destroy, so too is not some portion of their memory preserved for us by historians. To every man posterity gives his due honour, and if a fatal sentence hangs over me, there will be those who will remember me as well as Cassius and Brutus. He then left the Senate, and ended his life by starvation. His books, so the senators decreed, were to be burnt by the aediles, but some copies were left which were concealed and afterwards published.
and so one is all the more inclined to laugh at the stupidity of men who suppose that the despotism of the present can actually efface the remembrances of the next generation. On the contrary, the persecution of genius fosters its influence. Foreign tyrants and all who have imitated their oppression have merely procured infamy for themselves and glory for their victims. That year was such a continuous succession of prosecutions that on the days of the Latin festival, when Drusus, as city prefect, had ascended his tribunal for the inauguration of his office, Calpurnius Salvianus appeared before him against Sextus Marius. This the emperor openly censured, and it caused the banishment of Salvianus. Next, the people of Sidzicus were accused of publicly neglecting the established worship of the divine Augustus, and also of acts of violence to Roman citizens. They were deprived of the franchise which they had earned during the war with Mithridates when their city was besieged, and when they repulsed the king as much by their own bravery as by the aid of Lucullus. Then followed the acquittal of Fonteius Capito, the late proconsul of Asia, on proof that charges brought against him by Bibius Serenus were fictitious. Still this did not injure Serenus, to whom public hatred was actually a protection. Indeed, any conspicuously restless informer was, so to say, inviolable. Only the insignificant and undistinguished were punished. About the same time, further Spain sent a deputation to the Senate with a request to be allowed, after the example of Asia, to erect a temple to Tiberius and his mother. On this occasion the emperor, who had generally a strong contempt for honours, and now thought it right to reply to the rumour which reproached him with having yielded to vanity, delivered the following speech. I am aware, senators, that many deplore my want of firmness in not having opposed a similar recent petition from the cities of Asia. I will therefore both explain the grounds of my previous silence and my intentions for the future. Inasmuch as the divine Augustus did not forbid the founding of a temple at Pergamos to himself and to the city of Rome, I, who respect as law all his actions and sayings, have the more readily followed a precedent once approved, seeing that with the worship of myself was linked an expression of reverence towards the Senate. But though it may be pardonable to have allowed this once, it would be a vain and arrogant thing to receive the sacred honour of images representing the divine throughout all the provinces, and the homage paid to Augustus will disappear if it is vulgarised by indiscriminate flattery. For myself, senators, I am mortal and limited to the functions of humanity, content if I can adequately fill the highest place. Of this I solemnly assure you, and would have posterity remember it. They will more than sufficiently honour my memory by believing me to have been worthy of my ancestry, watchful over your interests, courageous in danger, fearless of enmity when the state required it. These sentiments of your hearts are my temples, 
these my most glorious and abiding monuments. Those built of stone are despised as mere tombs if the judgment of posterity passes into hatred, and therefore this is my prayer to our allies, our citizens, and to heaven itself, to the last that to my life's close it grant me a tranquil mind which can discern alike human and divine claims, to the first that when I die they honour my career and the reputation of my name with praise and kindly remembrance. Henceforth Tiberius, even in private conversations, persisted in showing contempt for such homage to himself. Some attributed this to modesty, many to self-distrust, a few to a mean spirit. The noblest men, it was said, have the loftiest aspirations, and so Hercules and Bacchus among the Greeks, and Quirinus among us, were enrolled in the number of the gods. Augustus did better, seeing that he had aspired. All other things princes have as a matter of course. One thing they ought insatiably to pursue, that their memory may be glorious. For to despise fame is to despise merit. End of Book 4, Part 2 Recording by Graham Redmond